I could definitely I would definitely probably use Android Studio if I was doing a lot of Java. Yeah, I'm a big Android Studio fan. I actually have a Vim plugin for inside Android Studio, but it oh, makes cool. it really difficult when I try to use Vim outside of Android Studio because I like have mixed the like IntelliJ key bindings with some of the Vim like key bindings to like optimize my workflow, but then I try and like like I have auto formatting. So I'll like be in a Vim terminal and like try and auto format and like nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can make things difficult. Yeah. Um also makes pairing with any like regular Vim user really weird because they're like, it's like Vim, but it's drunk. I'm like, exactly, that's <laughs> Android development. <laughs> Hi, Amanda. Hey, Sean. So uh, Derek and Layla are both out this week. Do you want to introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, sure. My name is Amanda. I work with Layla in the San Francisco ThoughtBot office as an Android developer. Okay, so actually, I got, I've got a question for you, because uh, I overheard a conversation. So at Shopify, the team that I... So I, I do open source full-time. Gotcha. Um, but I, I technically fall under a team here called Dev Acceleration, which is sort of uh, like we build all of the internal tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have a tool called Dev, which is our kind of general, like, get in your environment running, do sandboxing, run tests, uh, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And there was recently a big push to make it work with things other than just Rails projects. Okay. Uh, and so mobile was the biggest part of that. And I was overhearing, as part of the getting it working with Android, I was overhearing a conversation. It sounded like ADB has been, like, deprecated, and all of the command line tools have been deprecated in favor of Android Studio. Oh, that is news to me. I definitely still use um, ADB. I think they've possibly integrated them better. Okay. I think in the latest Android Studio update that's still in Canary or some other Raven bird channel, <laughs> um, I think that that has support for um, like your own aliases in the terminal inside Android Studio. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's what the update was. I could be wrong, um, but I definitely still use ADB. I think the hardest problem with Android setup is that order matters. Um, so you really have to install Java first and then Android Studio. And if you don't do it in that order, you end up really unhappy um, because the system Android Studio tries to be very clever and find it and find what version. If you don't have it, it makes assumptions. And then if you download a different version, you're in this weird, miserable place. Right. I know it's interesting comparing the approaches that Google and Apple took when it comes to just development environments and like the development flow in general, right? Because Android Studio for the longest time wasn't even a thing. Right. And it was just sort of like you had ADB and Eclipse. And yeah, a lot of people used Eclipse. And like there was kind of sort of the general things that most people used in terms of Ant. Well, I mean, Ant was the only officially supported way, and then people, like, hacked it in, hacked into Maven. But, like, before they switched to the Gradle build system and introduced Android Studio, it was all very ad hoc, but there was a lot of existing tooling that, that could be leveraged on, even if it didn't work together quite as well. Yep. It's just interesting contrasting that to the iOS approach, right? Where it's like they have the, the platform and the language and the IDE, although yeah. you would think the IDE should never crash, Yes. given how much control they have over it, and it still doesn't quite work properly. But uh, it's always been an interesting just contrast uh, looking at, at the differences between the two and the approaches that they took. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that with Xcode as well, like I think tooling is really hard. And so I actually do respect Google a lot for kind of opting to 
kind of piggyback off IntelliJ for Android Studio because that is just a very well-established working IDE that people have been using for a very long time. So rather than reinvent the wheel, kind of just being like, this works. I mean, they did the same thing with Java, I guess. But I definitely respect the kind of we need it to work approach and we're not as egomaniacal and obsessed with owning things end to end. Right. Which is kind of nice. Well, also, and it, it, you know, for, also for those, for any listeners who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, uh, IntelliJ is a Java IDE made by JetBrains. They make lots of IDEs. RubyMine is uh, one that's that's probably the most well known among Rubyists. And then Android Studio is the is the IDE that Google released uh, that is built off of the open. Is is, is the Community Edition open source? I actually or did don't, they just get the source code? I I'm not sure. I think they it might be open source. Knowing JetBrains, it might be. Regardless of if it's open source or not, there's the paid edition, the community edition, and uh, Android Studio was a fork of the IntelliJ community edition to make it more uh, Android specific and added things like a previewer that is a previewer for UIs and, and better better knowledge of like XML stuff that, that Android does and other th- other things as well. But th- at least in the original version, those were the big yeah, changes. Yeah, those are the big kind of components. So yeah, that's what Android Studio is for for any listeners who are unfamiliar with it since. Uh, I don't know if we've talked too much about Android, so I'm not sure how many Android devs we'll have listening. But because the last the last time I w- we were talking about Android was when I was on the AR project, which was, and that was mostly C, so it wasn't even really Android. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, like meeting other developers, um, it's really easy for them. I find that a lot of people have interest in iOS now because of Swift, and they find right. that language really exciting. But then, if you were a computer science major in college or you have any sort of formal computer science degree, you either wrote in C or Java when you first started learning. So they're like, oh, yeah, I could, you know, read some of that code. And it reminds them of when they were 18 and like kind of (laughs) (laughs) cracked out in college. Um, So it's always kind of funny to explain to people that I'm now an adult and I choose Java. I don't really choose it as much as it's forced upon me, but (laughs) people can relate. Right. So back when I was doing like, quote unquote, real Android, I was sort of a big proponent of Scala for Android. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was sort of right... Well, this was before Swift got announced, and then it, it started getting a bigger following actually right after Swift got announced. And a lot of people were talking about, could Scala potentially be Android's answer to Swift? Because uh, Scala was one of the largest influences on, on Swift as a language. Mm-hmm. And it seems like since then, Kotlin... Because ha- Kotlin wasn't really a, th- a, a thing back then when I was, when I was big into Scala. Yeah. And it's, it seems like Kotlin has, has gained some traction. And it definitely is a language that... If you're going to be heavily interrupting with Java, especially in an inheritance-based API like Android is when it comes to creating your own activities or fragments, it seems like it might be a much better fit. Yeah. Have you seen much adoption of, of Kotlin in Android, and do you think it could eventually kind of fill a similar-ish role? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm actually currently writing uh, an app right now in Kotlin. We have a internal um, Tropos, or I guess it's out in the wild for iOS, um, and we're working on the Android version in both Java and Kotlin. I definitely think it's um, being adopted. A lot of open source projects now will have a Kotlin version and a Java version. Um, I think because of all the reasons, it's a lot more attractive. It's a lot less verbose than Java. It solves a lot of the problems and limitations with the Java language. Additionally, not even with Java, but with Android, for people who don't know Android development, Android is almost always at least one year behind the most recent Java version. So I think they just announced, I don't know if it's released yet, Java 9. Um, and Android development is basically on six and a half-ish. Um, they've pulled over some features of Java 7, but not it's not completely not taking advantage of everything in Java 7, let alone Java 8, 
So even though the language is changing and growing and we're getting all these features in Java 8, they introduce streams so you can actually like iterate over collections nicely. Right. And anonymous functions that are yeah. less than six lines. Exactly. As an Android developer, you don't even have access to that. So right. Kotlin solves a lot of that by being a functional language that does compile down to the JVM. So you end up with bytecode at the end, which is why it's so interoperable. It's a lot, lot more lightweight than Scala, um, which is really nice. Right. Well, because the biggest issue with Scala was always because uh, Android, at least on Dalvik, and it seems to have been more or less fixed now by, um, I don't remember the name of the new VM. Uh, I think it is still, things are still down, compiled down to Dalvik. There's the Jack and Jill compiler now. Is it just the AOT compilation stuff? Yeah. Well, there are two things that made it a lot easier in um, 5, I think, which was the generational garbage collector because 4 and earlier have a, gar- uh, a garbage collector that makes like old versions of Ruby's garbage collector look like it's top of the line, <laughs> right? But then the other thing is uh, there's a method limit on, because they, they compile your entire, rather than having in, the individual class files that get packaged up as a jar, on Android, everything gets uh, compiled into a single DEX file, and that needs to represent your entire application. Yep. And there's an arbitrary limit there of... Uh, 67,000. Uh, yeah, short max val. Yeah. 65,775, yep. I believe it's the... It's yeah. 2 to the 16th. Yeah. And the Scala standard library is significantly larger than that in terms of number of overall functions because Scala has a tendency to create a lot of like just anonymous objects that have six or seven methods on each of them. And so you had to introduce... You, I mean, you were introducing tooling that most people would introduce anyway in order uh, to strip out unused methods and lower your overall your overall APK size but that was uh, a big pain back then yeah so that's that's for for those who are unfamiliar <laughs> with Android uh, that was why Scala was sometimes painful and why uh, yeah yeah and actually on the Kotlin like language website there's a whole section in the FAQ about like it's comparison to Scala, because I think so many people have that question when kind of exploring it as a language. Um, it's also kind of interesting to note that Kotlin was developed by JetBrains, and they kind of developed language and have immediately and intentionally started pushing it towards Android development, um, because they think that's kind of the biggest sell. I went to an Android conference back in March, and there was a bunch of talks on Kotlin, and the most popular question was always, does anyone have an example of an app that we would all know about that's in the Play Store that uses like 100% Kotlin. And it seemed like at that time the answer was no, but a lot of people had started writing their tests in Kotlin because that was a really easy way for developers to kind of play with the language without having to convince anyone on the product side that we're like doing something crazy and experimental, but also get to really use it. Um, I think at this point now, based on just Twitter, um, a lot more people are kind of starting to slowly integrate it into their apps and either new features or kind of slowly building it up. So I'm going to another conference in September and I'm curious to see at that point kind of the general feeling of how many people are using it. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of the issue with Scala wasn't so much problems with the language, but with the community that grew out of it. Interesting. And the Android community or the Scala side? The Scala side, definitely. The, the, the Scala Android community, there were dozens of us. <laughs> dozens! Um, I, was, I, I was a big proponent of it, and uh, I was thinking, and you know what, I think if I had been able to put more energy, if some other people had put some energy into it, it could have grown. But yeah. uh, that, that clearly did not happen. Yeah. So, I don't recall, does, Scala, does Kotlin have uh, overloadable operators? Like arbitrary overloadable operators? Off the top of my head, I don't know. Because that was a thing that that's the thing that Swift has, and yeah. it's a thing that Scala had. Mm-hmm. And because Scala sort of had the functional roots, 
It's the problem. This is the problem of, uh, that I have with Haskell as well. Like when you have arbitrary overloadable operators and people go crazy with them, right? Uh, like so many things in Scala would define the operator tilde greater than, so a squiggly arrow. Yep. It's like, okay, what does that do? Yep. You can't Google that. No. Yeah. We have this. Um, Thoughtbot has a project called Runes, um, and yeah. it's the Swift uh, operator library, and I've and trying to kind of dabble in iOS a little bit more and reading a lot of that code is it like hurts your brain. And the best argument I've heard from it so far is someone kind of said, when you look at a plus sign, you know what it means. And actually that is better than words. You know, you could write the word plus, but if you see a plus sign, you know exactly what's happening. So you don't, you don't have to think about it. So theoretically, once you knew what all these symbols meant, it should be just as simple I just think right. personally That's assuming like an unlimited <laughs> right. cognitive capacity to learn new symbols. Exactly. Like um, plus is different because every language has plus. Right, exactly. It was just Please the, do not comment on this episode with the, all of the languages that don't have plus. By yeah. the way, that was No. <laughs> I know not all languages actually have plus. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um it was just the closest argument that I ever heard to it was the first argument I'd heard that made me go, "Okay, maybe you're not all as insane as it would appear you are by just reading the readme for this library." Right. I kind of, I don't know, I liked, I really liked Rust's approach, because it seems like for most languages, it's either you have overloadable operators, mm-hmm. like most languages either allow arbitrary overloadable operators, or yeah. they do not allow overloading of operators at all, Yeah. Um, whereas Rust allows you to overload, I think actually Ruby is almost in the same place as well, where it's like, here's the predefined set of overloadable operators, and you can overload those operators. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a lot cleaner, too. Because like... It's always annoying when you switch something to use big integer in Java. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like, oh, I can't use plus anymore. Yeah. It is nice for um, nullness. It's, like, the only case that I've ever really found it, like, valuable for. Um, especially with, uh, there's an Android library called Retrofit uh, that Square owns uh, or releases. It's an open source library for, um, it's an HTTP client. Mm-hmm. And um, for query parameters, uh, if you pass null, it just doesn't add the query parameter, which is super helpful. But for pagination, it's really common to have, you know, from or two pages or size limits. And so if you used a regular int, the compiler won't let you pass null. And then it'll add this like query parameter of nothing or it won't even compile. So to be able right. to use big integer and pass null for this one particular use case is like nice. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fine. I just want to be able to use a plus operator with it. Yeah. And not dot plus. <laughs> or dot uh, equals for string. Right. Seems like they could have fixed that. That's not a thing anymore, though, right? Equals equals does call dot equals, I thought. Or am I just completely wrong? I've been writing incredibly incorrect Java. I've never switched. It's possible they updated it. But out of habit, I definitely still write dot equals. I'm pretty sure they changed it to, so that equals equals does use the dot equals method, like in Java 5. Oh, wow. It w- interesting. I, I could believe be comple- you. I could be completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, no. But, Someone uh, comment and let us know, since we just can't Google. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So this came up recently on uh, one of the Rust user groups. So quality in Rust, the way it works is you d- you define this, you implement this trait called EQ, mm-hmm. and a trait's basically like an interface. Um, like, have you done Scala or Haskell ever? No. So it's 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 basically like an interface, but you implement it separately from the type itself. Okay. So you wouldn't do, like, class foo implements bar. Got you it. you do class foo, and then later on you'd say, here's the implementation of bar for foo. Got it. And you define the uh, EQ method, and then there's the NE method, which has a default implementation. 
Okay. So we have values and references, mm -hmm. but the EQ trait is implemented for references as dereference and check if the values are equal. So like there's no actual form of reference equality by default in, uh, in Rust. Interesting. And I've been thinking about this, like in Ruby, and, and this is true in Java, right? Because the, the signature of equals is takes object. Right. Which I've always found a little bit confounding because like I kind of prefer it to fail to compile if I'm comparing two things for equality if they can never be equal. Yeah, I think the contract there is more like it's concerned about like equals and hash code. And so like if those two match up, then you're fine. But even so, it'll compile if they're not. It's just like a bad way to write Java code. <laughs> right. It's, and it's a thing that like it's a common mistake in Ruby where like yeah. they'll define their own value object mm -hmm. and it'll be some, you know, be basically a struct that has a few fields, but they'll forget to, to implement equality on it. And the default implementation like equality has a default implementation and it defaults to reference equality. Yep. I'm just like, when has that ever been useful? Yeah. I think a lot of the like kind of original computer science laws and programming mentalities made sense a really long time ago when people were really truly writing their own code outside of frameworks. But I think now that so many people are writing either mobile applications or Rails or something that's kind of within a framework, a lot of those original I'll call like OG uh, kind of concepts don't make as much sense anymore. Right. Um, because it requires that you both like understand how the framework is using them because the writers of the framework have made decisions about how they want to determine equality and they might be overriding the default implementation in places and then you might not in your actual code. So it kind of requires you to both know the framework really well and then also your language, even though like in, in Android, for example, like Java allows for things, but Android doesn't. So it's a lot of cognitive overload. Yeah. So I don't know how long ago the the API was released, but my phone just got updated with mm. Android seven. Nice. So as far as I'm concerned, it just got, it just came out, and yeah. we're all just seeing it for the first time. You're only about like two weeks behind in when they like officially released it. So right. Well, cause, I mean, it's a Nexus. So yeah. Have you have you played around with it at all? I have. I actually just got it a few days ago myself. Um, I don't care for the um so for the listeners who might not know um android 7 nougat which is the worst name just came out and one of the big features they allow for is a uh, split window so to have mm -hmm. kind of two apps on the screen at the same time which for android development to me is just a huge slap in the face um for the longest time in android what you saw on the screen in an app was referred to as an activity and if you wanted to have two things on the screen at the same time you'd have to have fragments so right. the classic example is like a master and a detail view. So like your email client, you'd have a list of emails on the side and the detail on the right. And that was how you handled split screen, admittedly, like within an app. And then because you couldn't have two activities on the screen at the same time. And then in Nougat, they were like, hey, just kidding. Now you can have two activities on the screen at the same time. But they can't interact. Like they're not as far as either one's concerned. They're just both on a smaller screen, right? They, yes. They're, they're not able to interact. They are actually. You can like drag things from one activity to the next. Oh. So this whole fragment nonsense <laughs> that we've all been dealing with for years is now <laughs> totally moot. <laughs> well... <laughs> I could see why that might be. Yeah, that might why that might be a little annoying. Yeah, um, but other than that, I like it. The updates to notifications are really great. I think everything is a lot clearer. For the longest time, you'd look at notifications, especially around location. There are so many different choices, and as a developer, I even have trouble reading them. It's like, what is the difference between high accuracy, low battery, and you know, GPS plus Wi-Fi? Like, it's really confusing, and I think they've done a much better job at explaining it to the average user. Like. 
this is what this selection means in terms of like security and battery life. Because I think those are probably people's biggest concerns when it comes to location. I will say this. iOS has no equivalent of the Fuse uh, location provider. Yeah. And I have I have one app that's on the Play Store that is like my own just personal thing. Mm-hmm. And I have an Android version or an yeah. iOS version that's like completely finished. Its yep. design is way out of date now because I wrote it for iOS 6. Oh, uh, wow, yeah. But like I've never released it. And every time a new version of iOS comes out, I go, look, like, can I do this without killing my user's battery? Nope. Nope. Because it, it needs to do a certain, a very specific type of geofencing that I just like, unless I want to uh, do like, unless I want to throw four square levels of engineering at it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to be able to do that geofencing nope. in a battery efficient way on iOS. The Fuse location provider is like the best thing ever yeah uh i have mixed feelings there as well i think this um something we talk about uh definitely like within the mobile space a lot is you are able to read we can read martin fowler and all these like classic mobile and just development architecture patterns which are all beautiful and great the problem is when you try and apply them to a mobile framework and so in android specifically a lot of the anytime you need a google api client you don't just get one for free with an app. You actually have to like create an instance of a Google API client. And then it has all these callback methods that assume you're using either an activity or a fragment. And it kind of right. forces you to architect your app in a way that you might not want to. And you can't kind of build a lot of these clean components that handle things in their own decoupled way. And I think that's definitely one of the most frustrating parts about mobile development is being forced to architect an app based on the way that either Android or iOS is forcing you to. I mean, to be fair, right? So it very closely mirrors issues that people have with Rails apps. Mm-hmm. Because an activity in Android is analogous to a controller in Rails. Got it. Uh, we, have, we don't have necessarily the same level. Well, we do actually have the same le- level of lifecycle methods, but it's a little bit different in that the lifecycle methods are all optional, and you specifically like have one method per endpoint. Got it. But similar thing. So you never knew up an instance of a controller in, in Rails. Yeah. And, and you don't necessarily ever... You, you can't test them outside of the test classes that Rails provides for you. Gotcha. But I think the way you end up doing it is somewhat similar in that you just try to pull as much of your logic into something that you that is not your activity class. And then, right. if possible, have on create just yeah. new that up. And then if you can avoid having to pa- pass context around, because once you pass context around, you're passing the world around. Yeah. And for, for those who are unfamiliar with Android, on create is sort of, so you, activity, again, represents sort of a screen or now half a screen, potentially. Right. <laughs> and there are various lifecycle methods that, are get, that get called, which are basically like when the thing first gets, what is effectively uh, your, your constructor, but you can't override the constructor because reasons. Yep. And then there, there are lifecycle methods for this thing has been constructed, this thing is on screen, but not necessarily in focus, and then this thing has, beco- has come into focus. Am yeah. I remembering those correctly? Yeah, so it's like if any of you have an Android device, kind of when you would hit the square button, so like you get to pick between all your different apps. So it's like people can still see it. Um, I think, and I'm definitely going to mess this up, but it's something like, so initially, it goes uh, on start, on resume, on create, then on pause, on stop, on destroy. And it, mostly a lot of it has to do with, like, can someone see this on your phone right now? Right. Um, and yeah, the constructor problem is, I think, to me, one of the most frustrating things because it makes dependency injection miserable. No, you just use, uh, what's what's the one that was really, I, I mean, I have no clue if it's still hot. The, there was one that dagger. was getting really hot. Yeah, Dagger was getting really hot like three years ago. Yeah, Dagger's still around. They've actually released Dagger 2, which like totally breaks and changes Dagger 1. Um, but there's a lot of overhead there and a lot of reasons why people might not like it or might not use it. 
it's just it's miserable whatever you end up choosing is pretty miserable it's it's leaps and bounds above using spring for for di fair i've never used spring but i believe you (laughs) nothing like having your entire application live in xml configuration files (laughs) No, see, because you don't understand. If it's all in XML configuration files, right. you can completely change the behavior of your application without having to recompile it. Yep. Because that's a thing that anybody has ever needed to do, ever. Yep. <laughs> God. Uh, that is one of the nice things, actually, about um, Kotlin and one of the reasons that people kind of argue for it. So for typical Android development, for people who don't know, there are three languages that you have to know. Java, obviously, for um, application code. Layouts are typically written um, in XML, although a lot of views are possible. You can write them in Java as well. Um, and lastly is Groovy for writing. Uh, Gradle is the build tool that Android uses. So it's Groovy, Java, and XML. If you switched over to Kotlin, you could theoretically write everything in Kotlin. So you go from three languages to one. You could still use Gradle or you could still, or you could still use Groovy and you could still use XML if you wanted, but it is a replacement. So the kind of context switching that you would do in a given day, or even if you were a new developer who wanted to switch over, it's a lot less languages. See, this was this was all the stuff I was saying. Like, this was why <laughs> Scala was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so no, that is a really nice feature, actually. Um, so a bunch of us uh, are unbooked this week in San Francisco, and so we decided to kind of get together and design and build an app in five days to kind of proof of concept, see that this works, and this is something that we could do as mobile developers and designers. And um, we're working on this app that very simply shows you uh, a list of fruits and vegetables and when that fruit or vegetable is in season. Doesn't solve a huge problem, but it really kind of, because of its simplicity, lets us kind of show off our design a little bit more. Yeah. So I'm writing the app entirely in Kotlin. And Kotlin, I think the people at JetBrains released uh, this library called Anko. And it's DSL, basically XML replacer. So you could write all of your layouts in Kotlin now which is really nice. It definitely isn't perfect. And there's a lot of kind of issues with it. The biggest issue for me right now is um, being able to preview the layout. If you write it in XML, Android Studio allows you to see the layout right next to it. And if you change something, you see it immediately. Well, that's the big benefit of a markup language over a programming language. Um, And so for Kotlin, if you wanted to use it for your views, you have to run every time you want to see a layout change, which if you have a small app, it took only a couple of seconds, but even that couple of seconds over the course of like, if you're pairing with a designer, you just look like such an idiot. I'm always like, I'm sorry, this is the world that we live in. <laughs> I mean, hey, you know what? If it's down to like a couple of seconds, by a couple, you mean like less than 20, right? Yeah, less than 20. I mean, that's leaps and bounds above where it was yeah. not that long ago. Is this for emulator or on device? Um, so this is actually just like if in Android Studio. Um, but oh, actually, so it'll actually it'll actually execute your code. Yeah, so it is running build oh, every fancy. time. Yeah, but compared to XML, which is instant, is a little not sure. ideal. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, definitely a lot of fun. There's also I think there was a lot of support for XML for a long time. Um, a lot of kind of there's this whole tools concept, so you can have things only in preview and then not actually have them in the code, which is nice. Right. And uh, Anko does not have that yet, so it's not quite there yet. It's definitely a massive jump in the right direction. But we're not there yet. This is just reminding me of, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the API now. It was new in M. Mm-hmm. Last time I was doing like major Android, it was, the, it was the, the general replacement for list view. Recycler view. Recycler view. Yes. And it was like, like you could see why it was going to be way better. Yep. So but t- kind of really crappy. Yeah. So, Did um, it get better? 
It did. It got a lot better. Um, very fortuitous timing. I actually just released uh, an expa- a recycler view library um, this morning. Oh. One of the many problems you get as a mobile developer is a designer coming to you and being like, I really want this web pattern. And you're like, the framework doesn't have it. So I have to build this custom. Um, so this solves the problem of an expandable list. So okay. if you have, you know, think about a bunch of categories and you want to tap one of the categories and have it expand. Mm-hmm. That's what this library does. Um, so list view was originally the option for showing a collection of data on the screen. Um, there were two components to a list view, list view itself, which extended from this class called adapter view and a list view took an adapter, which had a bunch of methods, but the big ones were kind of get item view count and this method called get view, which took mm-hmm. an integer position from your data list, your backing data set and created a view pretty simple. And that's how they showed it. The problem was it incredibly tightly coupled how the list was displayed with this kind of adapter, which is really responsible for, it's like your traditional MVC kind of controller for taking a set of data and then returning a view. So Recycler View pulled all the pieces out. There are three components now to get a list on screen. There's the Recycler View itself, which is just a view group, which is really just a parent layout. It has children layouts. Um, There's a layout manager, which says how we're going to lay out the views. And an adapter, which now, instead of having, like, I think base adapter has 10 methods, um, a recycler view adapter has three. Right. So it really, really simplified it. So my favorite example is if you wanted to have a vertical list and then you wanted to switch it to a horizontal, like the list to be horizontal, you just change out the layout manager. So it's literally one line of code. If you want it to be a staggered grid, you just change out the layout manager. So it really does decouple all the components of how you show a set of data on screen and makes it really, really customizable, which is nice. So I'm sure there are going to be some people right now who are like, well, why on earth is this so complicated? It's a list. So should we talk about like why exactly a yeah. recycler view has to recycle? Yeah. So this is definitely something that mobile developers deal with way more regularly than web developers. And that's state and memory and <laughs> the fact that you're trying to do everything on this super tiny rectangle. So the other advantage of Recycler View and the reason they named it accordingly um, is for memory allocation. So a typical list, I think, has eight items on screen. And mm-hmm. so if you had to inflate every view for, let's say you had a store and all of your products, that would get incredibly expensive and waste a lot of memory since the user is only seeing eight of these like items at a time. But also you want the actual title to change and things like that. So they're able to kind of reuse the existing view using a view holder pattern and just reassign values to the views that are already on screen. And a view holder pattern was a best practice that came out of the old list view. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. definitely a lot more optimized and a lot better, but uh, definitely with the ability to kind of extend something in quite the way you can with Recycler View, there's a lot of overhead. And just if, for example, you wanted to show... A very simple list. If you were like, for this fruits app, for example, it's like we have five fruits we're starting with. To get five fruits to show up on screen requires three classes and a lot of code. Right, and and right. So the other thing too, because you could you could recycle with list view. It was just like a yeah. not great API because they right they passed you the view and it may or may not be null. And if it was null, you had to deal with also creating the new one. Exactly. Um, so this this app that I have on the Play Store mm-hmm. is called Cigar Finder. Yeah. And it was a little thing I made right before I started at ThoughtBot because I wanted to just build a thing that I could ship in, like, my two weeks of downtime between yeah. jobs. And I'm a, I'm a big cigar fan. Mm-hmm. And I got tired of, like, having to call cigar stores to see if they carried the brands that I wanted. Yeah. Um, and none of them put it online. So it's a little crowdsource thing. Um, and it, it, it geofences in the background and sort of 
Uh, I, I hate saying it tracks your location in the background because that right. sounds really scary. But basically, yeah. it tracks your location in the background. Mm-hmm. And when you're at a cigar, a cigar store, yep. and you've been there for like you've been there for long enough that I'm sufficiently convinced that you're sitting there. Right, you're really there. It sends you a at a maximum of once every three days. It sends you a push notification saying, "Hey, does this store you're current is uh, that you're currently at carry this single cigar? Yes or no?" Got it. Uh, and the list is just populated by things people have searched for. Right. Um, it was pretty simple. But mm-hmm. um, what I wanted was, in terms of, of browsing the, mm-hmm. the results, when you so you search for a cigar, mm-hmm. and we show you a little map. And then we also have the list, the, the list version of that map. And on the list, I want it to be, uh, I think we show the list, and then you can tap it to get the map view. But I want it to be um, separated into the three sections, carried, not carried, unknown. And iOS that has the uh, there's the the three styles of lists there's the short the long and the the with the header gotcha and so on Android it was like a medium high amount of code just to even get the little headers because now all of a sudden right I was I was pr- now responsible for okay so I have two types of views that are going to be in this list yep and uh, writing all the code for like okay so if it's the header type. Yep. Do whatever, and if it's if it's the the item type, do this other thing, and make sure I have the right classes there. So it was like, it wasn't crazy bad, but it was a modern map boilerplate. Yeah. But what came with that was a lot of control, and I had a very specific design for the application, and so it was very easy to implement that design. Mm-hmm. And then on iOS, it was very easy to like get the segmented list. Yep. But then when I tried to a- implement the actual design and customize specifically the little header portion. Yeah. The overwhelming majority of code in that application is just for that purpose. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, and that's sort of like, is I, I feel like, is the crux of the difference between the two. Yeah. On Android, everything's just a little bit harder. Right. But you have a lot of control. And then on iOS, like, if you want to do things the way Apple wants you to do them, it's a little bit easier. But as soon as you need to step one foot outside of there, yeah. like, you're re-implanting the world from scratch. Yeah, I always kind of describe the difference um, by saying that on Android, everything is math-based. So Android will always return you some number value, either like if it's a direction that you're scrolling in or where you are on a list, it's always it's always a number value. Whereas on iOS, it feels like they've tried to help you by being like, oh, you're scrolling up, we're going to return you some value that means up. I know what mm-hmm. up means. But what it means, though, is that when you're like, I want to know how up I'm, you know, at what velocity or I want to be able to use that information, um, that becomes a lot more difficult. Whereas on Android, if you just want to know if you're going up, it's a pain. But when you want to start doing something with kind of the velocity or how far up you are, that number becomes really valuable. So customizing is really great. But you definitely have to, I think, for junior developers who are just like, I want a simple app that gets a list on a screen. You have to know a lot to get there. But once you're in it, customizing is definitely a lot simpler. Android definitely did not optimize for adoption, at least on the developer side. Um, Yeah, definitely not. (laughs) Hello Hello World is, um, well, Hello World's difficult in mobile in general. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's definitely true. I think there were, there are definitely times where I wish that Google kind of had the same crazy, you know, Apple releases something software once a year and hardware once a year. So they definitely put a lot of thought into what we're releasing, how it all fits together. And it seems like they have a roadmap, like they'll release something this year and the next year it builds on that. And you're like, oh, I see what you're doing. And it feels right. like at Google, it's like 40 different children, not that they're kids, I, Google engineers are adults, but it seems like kind of a classroom mentality of like, here's my homework, here's my homework, let's just ship it all. Right. 
And some of it's really great and a lot of it is, but it definitely doesn't always feel like well thought out or well put together in terms of the whole ecosystem. Yeah. I don't know. It's always it's always the trade-off, right? Cuz it's also targeting a much larger market and a much larger uh set of use cases, which is yeah, difficult. Yeah, I, I learned recently there are I think it's something like 40,000 unique hardware software combinations of Android running in the world. And they use that as like a braggy statistic, which to me as a developer is like frightening and gives me nightmares. <laughs> well, so that's the thing, right? But everybody like a lot of people use that as like, and this is why supporting Android is terrible. But it's like as a developer, you you unless you're doing something crazy with, with like 3D rendering, right. that very rarely matters because other than the differing screen sizes. Yeah. Like you have the minimum version that you target, which you target whatever basically everybody's targeting right now, which is has gotten better about being like not two three. <laughs> um, yeah, very true. Um, or or not four zero because then it, it went from two three to like okay now it's just four zero and nothing but four zero. But uh, right, like the OS has uh, responsive design baked into its core, so differing screen sizes aren't that big of a deal. Yeah, and the differing screen sizes isn't so much the issue as much as it is, I think, the backwards compatibility. Um, I think right. when people think of Android now, especially in the development community, think about material design. Material design is actually like not people still, I think, traditionally target 16. That gets you like 70 percent of users. Um, I think that's four one, right? A four one or four three. Yeah. Okay. Whereas M is uh, 19. Right. So for, for reference, just 16 was what I was targeting like two years ago when I was at ThoughtBot doing Android. So that hasn't I just, just so people know yeah. how rarely that number moves if right. they don't do Android. Yeah. And it was 11 for the longest time. Yeah, I think 16 is going to, because 16 is KitKat, and it's kind of where we're going to live for. Yeah, okay, so that's 4.3. That's what, yeah. that's, that, was, that, that was what it was back then. Yeah, so it's, it's still there. Um, and so I think okay. there are just so many things in terms of views that get added. And, you know, Recycler View is now its own library, so you kind of add that separately. Well, because well, everything goes into, into uh, what, what's it support called? Android library. Support library. Yeah. yeah. So- um, but it does make it like very frustrating when you want to do something that as a developer, you're like, this was three years old and I'm still having to like go have workarounds to be like, please show this shadow, please elevate this. Yeah. So, I mean, has it, has anybody, right. Cause it's been two years at this point. Mm-hmm. Is it, is it actually like there's still data to show that X, like in the U S there's a significant number of users on four, three. I think the Google numbers, um, like it's still. Well, but the Google numbers don't don't partition by uh, country. Oh, good point. I'm not I'm not sure. Um, you'd have to look at something like App Annie or one of those kind of platforms. Okay, right. Well, because right back when everyone was pushing for let's let's switch to four zero and greater and let's stop supporting two three. The big argument for anybody supporting 2.3 was like, well, if you go to dashboard.android.com, it still shows that there's a decent number of people. But if you actually looked at any usage uh, numbers from any real application, everybody was on 4.1 or greater. Uh, right. And the overwhelming majority of uh, the 2.3 the people were India or China, which, like, not, not to discount those users, but just if you're a U.S.-based startup, you're probably not actually targeting that market unless yep. you're a social network. Yeah. And I think the other issue is um, devices. So like Nougat is only available on Nexus right now. I think Samsung's obviously the other major popular Android device. They, a lot of uh, Samsung devices don't run Lollipop yet. They're not on um, M. So like that makes it harder to drop support for a lot of these older versions. And and, and it's an issue because like it means, right? So M, I just remember as sort of a functional person, functional programming tends to produce a lot of garbage. The yep. garbage collector pre-M is garbage. Yep. 
Uh, like, you need, you need to care about allocations. That Like, object pools are a thing people do on Android, which is weird. Because yeah. it's, it's considered, an, like, in the general Java world, right? Yeah. Object, the, the object pools are considered to be a general, uh, like, an anti-pattern. Because it's basically saying, like, oh, yeah, you think you can do garbage collection better than the garbage collector, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, 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 you can't. No. On Android pre-M, yes, yes, you can. Yep. It's a, it's a, it, so for, for Ruby listeners out there, it's literally, it's Ruby 1.8's garbage collector, but slightly worse. It's, it's just a very naive stop the world mark and sweep garbage collector. Uh, and Java puts a lot more things in object space than Ruby does. So there's a lot more that it just has to traverse in general. Anyways, yeah. uh, avoiding going into technical rants on that. Uh, <laughs> So one of the things I've always just loved, not because I'm not I'm not really an Android developer. Right. I, I say not really. I'm not an Android developer. I, <laughs> I just I, I just sort of play one on TV sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But I've always enjoyed just from the outside looking in that I can see stack traces uh, when I'm submitting a bug report. Yeah. And I had an interesting one that happened on uh, Monday. Mm-hmm. Maybe no, it was Tuesday. Um, so Monday I came back from lunch. Cause mm-hmm. I, so I have a scooter that I use because I, I don't walk terribly well because my back gave out uh, a number of years ago. And I had been having issues with uh, the building that I work in recently. Um, so I've been working from home a lot. But anyway, so I went, I went into the office and I brought my scooter with me. And I came back from lunch and there's a Slack DM from, mm-hmm. from a person who I'd, I, I don't think I'd ever spoken to before. It's just like, hey, your scooter wouldn't happen to have a Wi-Fi network on it, would it? I'm like, uh, yeah, it, it does. Why? <laughs> you should jump in the security Slack channel. <laughs> and people had been trying to track down this rogue Wi-Fi network. Oh, my uh, God. Because the thing was, like, so I renamed it when I first got this because uh, I, th- I thought it was hilariously silly that this thing had a Wi-Fi network. It was only there for a mobile app that was going to be coming someday, but the mobile got app it. wasn't out. And so I did a lot of pack sniffing because it just communicates over a JSON API to the thing is running PHP under the hood, which is oh my God. scary. Yeah. Uh, but I, re- I did a lot of pack sniffing and, and tried to reverse engineer a lot of its API. I figured out the way to rename the wireless network to they see me rolling, they hating. Oh my um, God. <laughs> and apparently, so A, it was that we didn't know where this Wi Fi network was coming from. Right. And then B, apparently, because it had the word hating in it, one of the directors was worried that it might be seen as racist. Oh my God. <laughs> Which, and then that turned into a whole other thing. But like, I just, I've been having issues with people in general. Uh, so I just wanted to, like, I've been trying to keep my head down. Yeah. So, you know, I pulled out the battery because that was the only way I could think of to get the thing off. Yeah, and I figured it's I'd always deal the with it. Anyway, so that night, my phone updates to Nougat. Uh-huh. And the next morning, I'm driving to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I plug the battery into my thing in the uh, in the car. My wife and I work at the same company, so she she drives, and um, I had pulled down the latest version of the app, which I had I, I haven't used in a while, but I know definitely like worked on the last version of Android. Right. And I was like, okay, let me see if maybe somewhere in this app I can just change the network name. Right. And the app crashed on boot. Oh. Repeatedly. Yeah. And, and I went and I looked at the stack trace, and it was a network on main thread exception. Oh. That's heartbreaking. So apparently, because, like, screw async task, right? Yeah. They were relying on, like, probably some view light or fragment lifecycle method or something. They were probably relying on, like, some specific place being off the main thread that's now on the main thread in NuGet. And, oh, now your app crashes on boot. Oh, my God. That's always so heartbreaking after you get an update and, like, you go to use an app um, and you notice that something is wrong or something is janky. And it's, like... As a developer, like, my heart just breaks because I'm like, that could have happened to any of us at any time. And, you know, there's some, like, product manager somewhere, like, squealing when they find out about it, like, screaming at this developer. So, yeah, on the other hand, 
yeah, doing network calls on the main thread <laughs> never if you're, acceptable. If you're, like, there's a very straightforward way to do network IO. Yep. <laughs> That's a, if 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 an update is causing you to get network on main thread exception, like yep. Yeah. You did that to yourself, friend. Yeah, I think it's really common. Um, so there's this library called uh, RxJava, which just gives you kind of reactive functional programming in Java. And RxJava is a really, um, I think, a very popular way for people now to kind of handle networking. Um, the problem is if you don't... Um, so you make a network call via uh, an observable, which is just a stream. And when you get the results back, you have to basically say please fetch the results on this stream and then return me the results on, or fetch the results on this thread and return me the results on this thread. And I right. think it's very common for newbie RX Java users to not thread that properly. And so then you do end up with a lot of network on main thread exceptions, but you're like, but I thought RX was supposed to be asynchronous. And it's <laughs> like, it can be, but you still have to know how to do that. On the bright side though, there, right? At least you're, you're consistently always going to be getting network on main thread exceptions. Yes. And in case it wasn't clear, network on main thread exception, Android will unconditionally raise an exception if you try to do network IO on the main thread because, like, mobile has limited CPU cycles and mm-hmm. you d- should never be doing blocking IO on the main thread because that's a terrible user experience. Yes. And other things that we should, that we should just find. Rx is sort of a, uh, it's called reactive functional programming and it's a, it's style of programming. A stream is just an asynchronous list if anybody's curious, if just anybody's unfamiliar with those terms. Oh, yeah. I have a meme um, that I always send around. It's like a dog meditating, um, and it says, everything is a stream. <laughs> you can it... represent everything as a stream if you really want to. Exactly. That's, I think, the like uber-crazy kind of RX motto. <laughs> okay, well, so on the uber-crazy RX motto, because you've, re- you've reviewed my, uh, my older Android code <laughs> from when I was on my functional programming, reactive programming kit. Yeah. So I'm assuming you saw the place where I was like representing a lot of UI code as reductions of stream. I don't remember that, but I believe that you did that. <laughs> well, so Marshall Codex was this project, which you guys can go check out, marshallcodex.com. It's great. It's, a, it's, it's really cool, and the clients are great. What they did was they had the grandmasters of various schools of martial arts come into a motion capture studio, and then uh, at ThoughtBot, I had built a way to sort of view annotated lessons around that, which allows you to view uh, what they're doing with precision that you wouldn't be able to get uh, from angles that are abnormal. And if you have somebody trying to demonstrate like, and here's how you do this punch, and I'm going really slowly, and see you do this thing with your elbow, but they're no longer doing the right thing with their elbow because they're trying to slow it down. And so because of the motion capture technology, you're able to slow it down and see it at a detail that you uh, wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, and move the camera around to kind of see it from different angles as well. Yeah, uh, and so you can get it from like a sky view or underneath. And, and so it was really cool. And so we originally built just the web app, and then we had done the Android app. And the Android app was like, when the project uh, stopped, it was like 80% complete. All of, the, all of the engine stuff was built out. It was, at that point, it was all just the storefront uh, mm-hmm. stuff that was unfinished. Yeah. But so we had built it in Scala, which like, now that Scala has really fallen by the wayside, it's an even more of an obviously bad call. Yeah. But also just given that we knew we were going to do a iOS version as well, mm-hmm. like obviously now <laughs> looking back on it's hindsight 2020, obviously we should have done all of the engine stuff in C. Yeah. Like there's just no good reason for us to have not done that. But there was some interesting stuff that we were able to do on the view side. And so one of the things that we did was uh, so... The camera controls, which, like, 
Listeners, you should you should seriously you should go to marshallcodex.com. There it's it's free and you can check out some stuff. So it will make more sense because the click and drag it's similar. So like we wanted to have it be so the camera is sort of like you click and drag to rotate around a sphere. And we wanted to do a similar thing with swiping. And so what we sort of did was I, I started grabbing all of the t- all of the touch events. Mm-hmm. And sort of and basically took every pair and started representing them as a stream of swiping in a given direction. And then all the various camera motions got just represented as reductions on that stream. Yeah. And then eventually on the main thread, we'd be like, okay, and then whenever we get a new event on this stream that is the result of all of these different reductions, like, we move the camera up. And then we dirty the OpenGL context and we re-render everything. It's kind of cool, but it's also one of those things where it's like, boy, if you're not, like, super into yeah. FRP... And you came and saw this, you'd be like, what is happening? <laughs> right. And I also am aware that anybody who just does normal Android who comes and is like, this is in Scala, is going to think yeah. I'm a complete insane person, which is <laughs> not un- an unreasonable assessment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you would actually, there's a library called RX Bindings, um, which sounds like would be right up your alley, but takes basically the wrapper around all the traditional, um, and Android everything is a callback, um, but it basically wraps all those callbacks into streams. So for text events or view events or anything like that. So I think that's becoming a lot more popular, and I think people would, who use RX at least, would a lot more easily recognize that concept and that sort of approach. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Like, Reactive Cocoa is pretty popular on the iOS side of things. Yeah, definitely. I think RX Swift, I haven't played with it myself yet, but I... Um, I don't know if people like it as much or given Swift if people feel they don't need it anymore. Right. Um, so I don't know how that is going. Because I know that I think just like Java, like with Objective-C, anything that would make it a little bit more functional and modernized was well received. But given that right. Swift and Kotlin kind of solve a lot of those issues, I don't know if people still feel that that's necessary. Well, I feel I, like we would need to have Gordon on here to really yeah. answer that. <laughs> yes. Cool. Well, we've been going for almost an hour, so I think yeah. maybe we should we should wrap it up. Cool. Cool. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 78. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other, you can leave a review on bikeshed.fm, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thank you so much, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>